ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we started in Luke's Gospel looking at the songs. Luke builds his narrative around the birth of Christ, around four songs. And we started looking as Pastor Jeremy preached so well from Mary's song, the Magnificat. Now we're going to look at the second song. There's four. As I said, the next one will be the shepherds as the angels come and sing to the shepherds. And then Simeon. <clears throat> next week is the Sunday before Christmas for you shoppers, late shoppers. So just want to let you know that. And uh, I'm excited about this. Last week we had such a great time of worship together as we gathered singing and praising God for who he is and what he has done. So tonight, I want to con uh, this morning, I want to continue that looking at Luke's gospel. As you have seen, probably this song, like Mary's song, was called the uh, Magnificat, going from the first word, magnificent, in the Latin. This song, Benedictus, just simply means blessing. It's the first word of the song. And so throughout history, it has been known this Way And here as Zechariah has had his child, John, who came to him when him and Elizabeth were not able to have children and came to him in a miraculous way, Zechariah is able to finally praise God and he is able to speak these praises. And that's what we find in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1 verse 67, it says this, and his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning already to sing praises to you. And just as Pastor Kevin has said, God, today we celebrate not only the Christ who came, was born, and lived amongst us, but the one who also died in our place and rose again. And so, God, as you reign above all, as you are on your throne, we ask you now to send your spirit here with us, amongst us, in each and every heart of those who hear this morning, so that your word may penetrate with your spirit in such a way as to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. Make those of us who are here and believe better believers, Father. Turn hearts that may be against you this morning toward you. May you be exalted in every heart and in every life today. All for your glory and all in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 
As you look at this passage this morning, it kind of may seem like this is like a, a story or a movie where it gives you the end and then the rest of the movie puts together how we got to this point. And in some ways, when we start by reading the song of Zechariah, we really have to put this song in context. How did we get here? What's the proper context of this passage? And I'm going to spend some time doing that because I believe this story is important. Luke, who's writing this gospel, as it tells us over in chapter one, is basically a historian. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. In other words, Luke has gone and he has done his research. He is a disciple of Paul later in life. So that would come a good bit later after the birth of Christ. So he's gone back and he's interviewed. He's found the people that were eyewitnesses. He's talked to them. Maybe even, even though we're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah were older in age, we're not told how old they were. Maybe even Elizabeth and Zechariah themselves, Mary, the mother of Jesus, all of those, he's going and he's compiling this information. And so as he comes to it, he wants to lay it out in such a way like a good historian would. He begins to, to lay out his gospel to tell the story of the one who came, the one who came for us. Luke, by the way, his work is so important to us. Over one-fourth of the New Testament was written by Luke with his gospel of Luke and Acts. And so Luke is giving us this history. And in doing this, he wants to tie together, as he begins his gospel, he wants to, to tie together what has come before. The end of the Old Testament. The end of the Old Testament prophetic books is the book of Malachi. It's the last book of our Old Testament in our Bibles. It's the last book of the book of the prophets, the book of 12. And those prophets are the ones that are telling of the coming Messiah, telling of, of how God is going to redeem. And that last book of uh, Malachi that ends our Old Testament gives us a promise that is very uh, particular to it. In the very last paragraph of the Old Testament, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And he will turn hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so here, the whole Old Testament for us ends with us looking toward this one who will come like the prophet Elijah who will proclaim the awesome day of the Lord. You're hoping that comes because the other option, he says, is destruction. You're hoping redemption, not destruction. You're hoping that this one who comes like the prophet Elijah will come. You're longing for that day at the end of the Old Testament. So the last words, we're looking to the coming of a new prophet. And the likeness of Elijah, the tale of the coming of kingdom of God. And Luke begins by telling this story. He's done his research. He wants to tell this story from the time of the prophets, by the way, from the time of the Old Testament until the time of the New Testament was some 400 years. Some 400 years. There had been silence for 400 years at the end of Malachi to Luke. There had been silence there from God. Now, that's not the first time there had been silence. At the end of Genesis, the people of God were taken over to Egypt to find, to find uh, food when there was a major famine. They were protected there by Joseph. But by the time you get to the book of, uh, book of Exodus, they had been there for 400 years. They had become a great nation, but they are under the bondage of Egypt. They're under the bondage in, in, of Egypt as slaves. And so 
from the time of the end of Genesis to the time of Exodus is 400 years of God's silence. And God speaks again to Moses, the first prophet, if you will. And he speaks to him and tells him of his redemption. And so now at the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of Luke chapter 1, there has been 400 years of silence. 400 years of not hearing from God. After prophet after prophet had given a word to the people of God of what he will do, 400 years of silence. Now some of you can recognize this and how difficult this would be. You know how it goes if you are silent. One of your kids asks you a question and you don't answer right away. Y'all know the wrath comes from that kid. Y'all know what I'm talking about. My mom, I love my mom dearly. She sends me a text. If I don't answer within five seconds, she sends the same text again. Some of y'all do it and you need to stop. <laughs> you need to just wait. Just give us a second. Because the silence is deafening, isn't it? We, get, we ask a question, we want a response. We ask a question we want to hear. And that silence kills us to not know what may happen. We're waiting on that response to come. And so, and ultimately, can you imagine 400 years? And things hadn't gotten better for the people of Israel in those 400 years. They've gotten worse. In fact, it tells us at the beginning of Luke, verse 5, the days of Herod the king were there. Herod was one who came in the name of Rome. Here, Israel is not under bondage of Babylon. They've come out of that. They have their temple, but now they're under the bondage of Rome, which is even more oppressive with Herod, who's even a more oppressive king, who's taxing them and wanting more from them and not good for them and, 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 and cozying up to Rome. And so as the people of Israel are not treated well. And so ultimately things haven't gotten better for them. They've gotten worse. In 400 years, they haven't heard from God. In 400 years, they're under bondage of Rome now. In 400 years, they haven't gotten a message. But still, what it tells us here is that every day, they're doing what they should be doing. They're going to the temple, and they're praying for the coming Messiah. They're going, and they're praying. And Luke begins with this story, because within the, for the first time in 400 years, God is going to speak. What we have in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 1 is God speaking for the first time in 400 years. And what he says here is important. Zechariah and Elizabeth have a great testimony. In Luke chapter one, verse, verse five and six here, it tells us how Zechariah was a priest in the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Here we see that they are walking. They are walking after the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes. They're righteous before God. These are people who believe the promises and they're walking after them. They're living their life in light of who God is and what he's done. They know the Old Testament scriptures. He's a priest. He studied these things. Even Elizabeth is in the family of Aaron, the line of the priesthood. They know the Old Testament. They know these things and they're walking blamelessly before God. Yet they have not been blessed with a child. They had not been blessed with a child. So here we're introduced them in just these two short passages. And it goes on to tell us more. Zechariah here, this priest in the order of Abijah. Now, what that means is, is David was looking at all of the priests. He divided them up into divisions in the Old Testament. And each division would have some 300 priests in it. And they would have responsibility for two weeks out of the year, one week at a time. And so for two weeks out of the year, they would have the responsibilities of the temple that had caring for it every single day. 
But because there was 300 of them, they would have to split up these shorts. Not all of them would be used at that time. And so they would draw straws or, as it says, cast lots, like throwing the dice to see who would be used. Now, this made sense because these tasks of caring for the temple were important. No favoritism needed to be shown. No ego needed to be in place. It was left up to the straws or the dice or the lots, if you will, to do it. But before we go any further in this, you may think that, therefore, if it's left up to casting of lots that it's left up to chance but that's not the case for there is no such thing as chance in God's word you may say to me good luck and I'll be like thank you I know what you mean when you say it but I don't believe in luck I want to go ahead and tell you that what the scriptures tell us is that nothing happens by happenstance or chance everything is in God's hands and under God's control even here in Proverbs 16:33, it tells us clearly the lot is cast in the lap but it Every decision is from the Lord. So on this day, Zechariah receives the lot. He's the one that is chosen to go in, and that was not happenstance or chance. That was in God's timing and understanding. And so Zechariah is the one on this day that receives the lot to come to him to care for the temple. But this was no small thing either. Zechariah's lot was more special than either the other ones. Some would have to go out and sweep the front of the temple to get it ready for the worshipers. Some would have to care for other things on the side. Some would have to go and prepare the lamb that would be slain that day. But Zechariah received on this day the lot that was cast for the most important of tasks. It would be Zechariah that would enter into the most holy place. It would be Zechariah that would enter in there and he would burn the incense for the prayers of the people. The only one would do this. And whenever someone received this lot, whenever they stepped in and did this task, they retired from the priesthood. They would no longer come and serve. This was the ultimate. The lot had been cast to you. You get to do this. This is it. This day is a day that Zechariah, even older in age, had been longing for. As a priest, this was what you were looking to do. This is what you were hoping for, to give the task, to receive the lot, to get the task, to step into the most holy place where the lampstand is there, the table is there, the bread is on the table, representing the household of God where he dwells with his people and you step in there and you start to burn the incense and that incense that burning of the incense was representing the prayers of the people so it tells us the people were outside gathered in the courtyard as Zechariah steps into the most holy place and he begins to light the incense and get it burning offering up prayers on behalf of the people Zechariah has been longing for this as I said once you do this you retire you step back. This is the ultimate of places. The bell would ring so the people knew Zechariah had entered and started the process, and they would begin to pray. They would begin to pray. And what would Zechariah pray? Most assuredly, they had prayers that they lifted up. Most assuredly, their prayers, like always, were prayers for that coming Messiah. It was the time of Herod. They were in the darkness, if you will, of Rome, but they had promises in the Old Testament that were, that were saying that there'll come a great light in the midst of that darkness. They're saying there'll come a Messiah who will save them and redeem them from their enemies. Surely Zechariah had offered up those prayers. God, send your Messiah. God, send the one to redeem us. God, send the one to save us on behalf of the people. Surely he'd done this, but also I am willing to bet. And even if I look here and see, we have evidence in the text that Zechariah at that moment in the presence of God where he only gets to go one time, one time, he offered up another prayer. He said, Lord, give us a child. 
Bless us with a child. Give us this, Lord, offering up, taking this moment to take it for his family. Zechariah walked blamelessly before God and righteously. He gets the, the job that he'd been longing for, going into the presence of God to offer up the prayers of the people, calling for the Messiah to come, even praying for him and Elizabeth and their family. And there, in the midst of that scene, offering up those prayers, making sure that incense is burning, an angel appears. An angel, Gabriel. Now, Zechariah would have known who this is, right? Gabriel had appeared to Daniel sometime before. As a priest, you would recognize this. Gabriel had appeared to Daniel as the messenger of God who came and told Daniel, here's what you're going to do in light of Nebuchadnezzar and who he is. Here's what you're going to do. Now, Gabriel appears again to Zechariah. He even says, I am Gabriel. He appears there. And he tells Zechariah something here in the most holy place for the first time, for the first time in 400 years, God has broken his silence to Zechariah in the most holy place. And here is his messenger, Gabriel, who has come to say, I've got a message for you. No longer is God silent. Now he is coming. Now it's happening. I've got a message for you, Zechariah. And here's what it is. Zechariah standing there sees the angel. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife will bear you a son. That's how we can know that he's sitting there praying, Lord, give us a child. He may have been praying this his whole life and now he prays it again. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. But this is not just any son. You're to call this son John. You're to call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here Gabriel brings this announcement. God is no longer silent. And he tells him, you know what Malachi told us about at the end of his book? You know what his last prophecy was? That there coming one named Elijah and he'll turn the hearts of the children toward the fathers, the hearts of the fathers toward the children. He's going to bring peace. He'll bring his kingdom. That's going to be your son. That's going to be your son. In other words, everything you've ever prayed for is coming true. Everything you've ever wanted is coming here comes the kingdom of God. Your son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah who will enter in. Your son is going to be that one who is the prophet Elijah who will tell that the kingdom of God is coming. All you have to do is name him John. All you've got to do is name him John. Seems simple, right? But that's not exactly how it happens after this. Zechariah, who had been faithful, who had followed in obedience, hears this message. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Clear testimony, Zechariah was righteous. He calls himself old, his wife is advanced. He was a little bit kind. Y'all see how it is. It's a good lesson. It's not in the sermon, but I just gave it to you. I'm an old man. How do I know this is true? Understand the, 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 the statement here. 
Zechariah has been praying for this for some time. He'd been longing for the Messiah to come. He'd been offering up prayers for this on behalf of the people. He had been praying to God to provide a child. Why do we know? Because Gabriel says your prayers have been answered. He'd been praying for this. He'd been longing for it. He's been looking to it. But here's Zechariah, whenever he's confronted with the angel and the message from God, he doubts it. He doesn't believe, he disbelieves. He shows a statement of unbelief. Yes, he's righteous before God. Yes, he's walking, walking blamelessly before God. Sure, he drew the, the short straw so he could enter into the most holy place to have this moment and this time in this place that so many long for. Sure, he's got an angel, Gabriel himself, appearing before him, the same one that appeared to Daniel. Sure, he had been praying that God would provide a child, and now God says he has, and he's seen this happen before. He's seen the Old Testament story of Sarah, of Hannah, and so many more that were barren that God provided for them a child. He's seen these things. Surely he'd been praying for this Messiah over and over again. Surely he should know, finally, your prayers have been answered. But instead, he responds with doubt and disbelief. Instead of believing and saying, praise God, he responds with doubt and disbelief. Now, listen to me this morning. It is okay to have doubts. It is okay to question God. He is a big fella. He can handle any of your questions. He's not scared of them. He's not running from them. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to even doubt sometimes the glories and the majesty of God. God can handle it, but it is altogether another thing to continue to look at the goodness of God in the face over and over and over again and still demand, demand more. Still say, I gotta have something else. It's one thing to have doubts. It's one thing to have questions about God's goodness and his glory. It's another thing to stare his glory at the face and say, no, I need something else from you, God, before I believe. I need some other sign here. I need something else. We need to know that there comes a point where the Lord says enough is enough. I've shown you my glory. I've sent my messenger to stand right beside you in the most holy place. I've told you you have a child. I've told you that your child will bring forth the Messiah. You have seen my goodness over and over. What more do you need? Enough is enough. Jesus tells them that keep demanding signs from me. He tells the Pharisees who had seen him walk on water, who had seen him raise uh, the dead, who had seen him cause the blind to see in the depth. He's seen all of this. And they still wanted to see more. And Jesus finally says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You've seen my glory. And here Gabriel is clear. No mincing words. Whenever this question comes up of unbelief from Zechariah, the angel answers him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. In other words, who are you to question me? Who are you to bring this to me? Who are you to doubt me? I'm an angel standing before you that stands in the presence of God and you're going to doubt my word? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you, breaking the silence of 400 years. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel's response is strong. In other words, he says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You want a sign of who God is? I'll give you one. And this is a good lesson for us this morning. We must be careful. 
We oftentimes think we can negotiate how this is going to go down when we come face to face with God. We oftentimes think, hey, I can determine my, uh, what I require from you, God, before I believe. I can determine what you should give me before I trust in you. I can tell you and negotiate the deal. If I'm going to follow you, let me negotiate some of this. And in our negotiation and in our doubts, we must be very clear that we do not become arrogant and prideful before an almighty God. Because if we are, he just may give what we ask for. What we ask for sometimes is disastrous. We don't even know it. We don't negotiate this deal. We come before God humbly. We come before God knowing that he is God and we are not. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Silence. Silence. You will not speak, he says. And this word for you will be silent is a word in other places that that speaks to deafness. In other words, not only will you be mute, but you'll also be deaf, which is testified over in verse 62, whenever they said, when they're trying to tell him something, they had to make signs to him so he would understand. In other words, you want a sign? For the next nine months, as this child is going to be growing in your wife's womb, your sign will be the fact that you will have to sit in silence and deal with God. He shows his power in him. It shows his power in him that you will not speak and you will not hear. You will sit in silence. No one is confronted by the Lord and leaves the same, by the way. And what we must realize is we can't negotiate the deal. We come on God's standards, understanding who God is and what he's done. And when we see his glory face to face, our simple response is praise. He walked out as they were waiting and he couldn't even speak. It would be tough, wouldn't it? I would want to tell everybody what just happened. But you can't even speak. He'd have to sit in his silence. And over the next nine months, what would happen? Just in this passage, it tells us, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Just as he said she would, she conceived. Mary comes and visits and she's been told she's going to have a baby and the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Zechariah sits in silence. Mary there is singing, right? If he's deaf and he's mute, even in their presence, Mary sings her song. She's with Elizabeth. She sings that Magnificat that we looked at two weeks ago. She sings that, but Zechariah is in silence. He has to deal with the fact that Mary's singing. He can't hear all of his, all of his glories, all of these things that take place, all of these stories he could tell. He sits in silence. Then the baby is born. And we may think that's the end. We may think when the baby's born, it's time he can speak again. Nine months in silence, but that's not what happened. Maybe he would be released, but he wasn't. It was eight days after the baby was born. Eight days after the taking, uh, they took the baby to the priest. And there, in light of the promises of God, they would recognize that and, and, and seal that promises within their family by taking the act of circumcision. And on that day, on that day, they would name their child. They want to name the baby at that time, as was custom. So they come, here's Zechariah in silence, can't speak. Can't hear, they have to motion him with hands and it's time to name the child and Elizabeth steps up and Elizabeth says his name is John. Some way Zechariah has communicated that baby's name is John to Elizabeth. His name is John, but as they've communicated, he hadn't told his family and y'all know how in-laws can be. Don't laugh at that. 
He's going to name him John. She's going to do it. Zechariah can't even speak. Who's going to speak for Zechariah? We need to speak for Zechariah. You need to name him after his father. That's the custom. Name him after his father. And so here comes the family. Everybody's lobbing into it. You can see the chaos. Y'all haven't ever been there. Y'all's family's probably all in order. You can see the chaos. Everything's happening. What's his name going to be? His name's going to be John. No, it can't be John. It's got to be Zechariah. And they go and they make signs to Zechariah. And Zechariah says, give me the tablet. He gets and grabs the tablet and he writes, his name is John. That's what the angel told him in the first place. That was all he had to do. God's grace has shown up to you. He's going to give you a child. He's going to provide salvation. He's going to do this. All you have to do is believe in him and name your child John. And here, at this moment, this act of Zechariah, his name is John. They all wondered, all the family going, why is he listening to her? His, why not? They're wondering about it. And immediately it says in verse 54, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. You see, Zechariah, over those nine months of sitting with silence, had realized his problem. Even though he walked upright with God, even though he was seeking after him, sometimes when we're seeking to do that, we make some missteps, Correct. And in making those missteps, that does not affect the plan of God for our life. It does not affect the promises of God in any way. It only affects our enjoyment of them. And so Zechariah here was not able to enjoy all of this unfolding before him because he didn't believe in that moment. And so God had not separated himself from Zechariah. He had only disciplined Zechariah to teach Zechariah that God is good and his promises are true. And all your response needs to be is blessing and praising God. Sometimes God's graciousness to us is in disciplining us so we can know that truth. Because our disbelief and our acts do not change the promises and glories of God. And here, his belief led to obedience, which led to blessing. And understand that order. Belief leads to obedience, which leads to blessing. If you get that out of order, if you try to do obedience first without belief, that's legalism. It only leads to death. But what happens here is that when you believe, that belief causes you to act. I believe God is who he says he is. I believe this son is everything he promised to be. I name him John. I'm acting in obedience to what he said to do because I believe. And when he acts in obedience to the belief that he is exercising, blessing comes. Blessing comes. And the blessing is poured out. And as soon as he can speak, he begins blessing God. And Zechariah begins to sing. And I believe this happens immediately. Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit and they hadn't had a prophet in 400 years and now he's going to prophesy. Now he's going to say, and when he blesses, he blesses in this simple way. He simply says, God's promises are true. And he summarizes those in, in two ways in the first part of this. He says, all the promises to David has come to true, has come to pass. He blesses God by fulfilling his promises to David. To David, he had promised that he will send a king in David's line that will reign on his throne forever and establish his kingdom and establish his kingdom he will bring peace to all of his people that day is here and in bringing peace he will bring salvation redemption and here it says that this one who's come in the line of David is bringing that horn of salvation the horn represents the horn of the animal the power that is to come and what they would say is that when that animal is ready to demonstrate his power he would raise up his head his horns and then ram them into anything that comes and so it is here 
of God. He has shown his power to take on anything that stands in the way of his redemption and his salvation. He has shown his power to take on anything that comes in his path and he will put it out. He will make it right again, whatever is wrong, to bring salvation to his people. We praise God for he's kept his promise that he made to David. We praise God he's kept his promise that he made to Abraham. You see that down in verse 73. These two figureheads of promises, these two covenants made, the covenant made, the promise made to David, the promise made to Abraham. And through Abraham, what this would represent and mean is that God would come and he would bless his people. And anybody who curses his people, he will curse them. Anybody who blesses them, he will bless them. And all the nations will be blessed through him. In other words, your enemies have been dealt with, he says. We don't need to deal with them anymore. And what does that do? When your enemies have been dealt with, you don't have to live in fear. Jesus says this. He says this about the devil. What can the devil do to you? What can he do? Even if he takes your life, you have new life again in me. What can he do? There's no fear for us who have known the salvation that has come through the promises that were made to Abraham who has come to us. And so now we don't live in fear. We simply serve God. We serve with holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Because of him fulfilling these promises, we praise him for his fulfilling those promises and we serve him in every way for he has given us mercy. The fulfillment of this covenant has come and mercy has been realized. And then the second half here, he blesses God for his son, John. He blesses God for his son, John. He goes from thanking God for what he has done in answering the promises of the Old Testament to now pointing forward. Here he clearly begins to exercise his belief because this one who's coming, this one who's coming, he says, this is the one who will be the prophet of the Most High, as Malachi 3.1 says. This is the one who will tell of the, prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. As Isaiah 40 says, this prophet is going to be my son. He's going to prepare that way. He's going to tell people of salvation. He's going to tell people that their sins have been forgiven. He's going to proclaim the gospel because that's what the gospel offers. Salvation and forgiveness of sins. This is my son and he's coming. And Zechariah finally blesses God. For the rising sun, in verse 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The old English Testament's Bibles that interpreted this would use the word day spring, where the day spring will come. This idea of the rising of the sun that is appearing gives way and fulfills an Old Testament understanding. Darkness looms. Darkness looms. And where darkness looms, oppression, despair, hopelessness, helplessness. Where darkness looms, there is only shadow. There is only fear. But there's coming a day, the prophets tell us, where that light will shine into the darkness. In fact, Isaiah 9, which is speaking of the coming Messiah, says that the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And here, Zechariah says that's exactly what's happening before us. The sun is starting to rise. And if any of you ever get up early enough to go see the sunrise, you recognize what takes place. For that little sun begins to come up, and where it comes up, darkness cannot exist anymore. And it takes over the sky. And when it takes over the sky, all we see is day, and everything is brought to light and known. And the hopelessness and the image that bears it and despair 
runs and flees, for the light has come. And Zechariah says, that's what's happening today. He blesses God, for he's answered his promises and not forgotten him. He blesses God because his king has come and brought salvation. He blesses God for his people have been freed from their enemies, and they have life to follow him in service. He praises God because his son is coming to be the one to prepare the way. He praises God because the light is beginning to shine. The light is beginning to shine. And this is the great testimony that Zechariah believed the redemption of his people, the horn of salvation, saved from their enemies, delivered by mercy that has been promised. All of it is here. Some say that in the Old Testament there's some 400, 400 promises of the coming Messiah. Luke will tell us that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming Messiah. Here in Zechariah's song, there are 33 references and allusions to the Old Testament. In just these few short verses, Zechariah is saying, everything God has ever promised has now come. Everything we ever hoped for is now here. And Zechariah is recognizing something that's important for us to say today, that what God has delivered and brought to us in the coming of his son is enough. I don't need any other argument. I don't need any other sign. I don't need anything to be added to it. There's no negotiating the deal anymore that now the king has come. He rules and he reigns. And the one who dealt with our enemies, and it wasn't the enemies of this world, for the enemies of this world are nothing before God. Bring on their chariots. Bring on their horses. Bring on anything. They have no power before him. The enemies that God dealt with are the very enemies that we could never deal with on our own. Sin and death, and both of them have been crushed by the great horn of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and put to death. So now we don't fear sin. We don't fear death. And there's no darkness over us. There's only light. And we have life because of what Christ has done. And we don't need anything else. We don't negotiate these terms. This is what God has presented to us in the gospel. And he says, now come and believe, believe. We don't need another sign. Jesus is enough. And that's what Christmas represents. And the testimony of every believer in this room is yes, we have doubted at times, but God has shown us over and over again that all of our doubts are futile and gone. And they disappear in the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We trust him. He is enough. Do you believe that? Learn from Zechariah. Learn from him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, God, to believe. And where we believe, make us better believers. May every heart in this room say Jesus is enough for us. We don't need any other argument. We don't need any other plea. There's no other sign that needs to be done. Christ Jesus is enough. He has come. He has died. He has risen again. And now he reigns and he is enough. Enough. God, if there's hearts here that aren't turned toward you, may you turn them even now as the prophecy in Malachi said that you'll turn the hearts of the children toward their fathers. And if there are children of yours in this place, God, that have turned away from you, walked away from you, will you turn them back to you even now and let them believe? Let them believe. God, may no one walk out of this place doubting your goodness and your kindness for it has been on display for us for centuries 
through your son, Jesus Christ, and his word. May we believe. We ask all of these things in the power and the name of Christ. If you're here today and today's the day you need to believe, I'll be standing here to receive you, to trust in him, to follow him, to join our church, whatever it needs to be. Let's believe today. Let's stand together.